0: Today I'm joined by Lord Dick Tavern. He was the founder of the Democratic Labour Party, member of parliament for Lincoln between 1962 until 1974. Also a member of the National Committee of the SDP uh, and was also the first ever director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Welcome, I'm glad to be there.
0: And the first question I have today is, do you consider yourself um, as a centrist, personally, but also more widely? What do you think that centrism uh, as an as an idea means?
1: Well, well, I do regard myself as a centrist. I've never been a fundamental socialist. And in fact, uh, I very strongly supported Gateskull. I've never regarded myself as a fundamentalist socialist. I've always regarded myself as a social democrat. I very much was so impressed by Crossland's monumental book about the future of socialism, in which he said the Labour Party should not just be there to promote nationalization. And I made a speech at a Labour conference after the 59 election, in which I, in fact, said Gaetzkel was absolutely right. And I was the only person at that stage which raised the question of clause four and supported Gateskill. Uh, in fact, so much so that I was booed. And that was one of the reasons I became an MP later because when they were choosing a candidate for a by-election sometime later, Gateskull and a group saying it's very important to get the right candidate for this. What about that chap who got booed at the Labour Party conference, which was me. And that's how I got recommended by the Gateskelites for the a time when I was finally selected then as an independent, uh, not as an independent as a social Democrat.
0: Um, So one of the reasons that you originally fought that 1973 uh, Lincoln by-election was due to the fact that you supported uh, the European Economic Community. So what would you say were the sort of fundamental reasons that you you supported the, the European Economic Community as it was then?
1: Well, I think there was a fundamental question, first of all, which was asked by Dean Acheson. Dean Acheson said, at a certain period uh, uh, of post-war politics, um, Britain has lost an empire, but it has not yet found a role. And I think the answer to the Dean Acheson question was it hadn't found a role because its role was Europe. Because Europe was a centre then of a new development, freedom and democracy and the rule of law were very much centrist to the central, to the demand to the uh, requirements and the argument uh, for Europe uh, and Europe became the great issue between the left and the right.
0: So um, I suppose my, my my next question then is like how have you seen the, the European Union then evolve over time because of course it, it started as the uh, European economic community um, and then became the European mm-hmm. Union and, and has expanded so what, what are your thoughts on on how it's expanded and, of course, the the UK leaving as well.
1: Well, I think, first of all, it was one of the most extraordinary developments in post-war history, because here were old enemies, France and Germany, suddenly linked in very close friendship and gradually developing a political community, as they wanted to do. So I think that was something we should have been wholly encouraged but we were always a bit doubtful about it, we weren't too keen to commit ourselves, we were sort of half-hearted members, although we did make one of the biggest contributions to the development of the European Community, which was the single market. Very, very important development, and that was a British proposal and it was pushed forward by Margaret Thatcher and her uh, appointed commissioner. and. Uh, In fact, I think that the argument has strengthened over time and is very strong at the present because the world has changed. We now face a very real crisis, a very aggressive Russia, a strongly expansive China and a somewhat uncertain United States. So we depend very much on the future of Europe. And I think this is where our leaving Europe, weakened Europe, and where our possible eventual re-approachment re-appro- with Europe is absolutely vital to, because we will make Europe stronger. Mrs. Thatcher put it this way he says, when European nations can do things together that they can do better together, that makes Europe stronger and we should support it. Where, on the other hand, people can do, uh, nations could do things better on their own, they should do them on their own perfectly reasonable statement. It was part of the Bruges speech, which people have forgotten about. So
0: do you think the, the UK then will, will ever rejoin the EU? Um, do you think it is a, a possibility, or do you think it's it's just a case of some kind of closer relationship at this point?
1: I think it's a possibility because of events, but it'll take time. I can quite understand, though I don't really sympathise with the attitude that Keir Starmer has taken, who said, look, brexit is irreversible uh, and uh uh, we must only concentrate on making it work you can't make brexit work it doesn't work and in fact i think the attitudes will change and is changing all the time because uh uh, brexit is uh, at the time of course got a small majority at the referendum but brexit is now a very unpopular concept And the votes, uh, the popular vote now feels that Brexit was a mistake. And the support for the view that Brexit has been a bad, dire mistake is strengthening all the time. So what I think will happen is that if Labour wins the next election, which I think is quite likely, and I certainly hope it does, because I'm not a great supporter of the Conservative government. But if Labour wins the election next time, it will find that in order to uh, deal with the great problems of poverty and uh, equalization, uh, leveling upwards, uh, facing them, that those problems cannot be separated from Brexit because Brexit has led to the decline in our living standards. It's led to decline in our trade, decline in our influence. And for all these reasons, Britain has no longer become something whose opinion matters in the world. But I think that both from the European point of view, which wants a stronger Europe, and from British point of view, which wants to solve these problems, I think that uh, Britain's future relations with Europe will grow. I don't quite know when or how. I think that if the Labour government is formed as a Labour government, they will find that, it makes an awful lot of sense for them to join the single European market because we've lost 15% of our trade with our biggest and most profitable market. So I think it'd be very important and you'll see the increasing advantage of our joining the single European market and indeed the customs union. Well, now if we've joined those two, then we're getting very close to being members of the union again. But that's not an argument for the immediate future. Conservatives would love to fight the next election on that again. And also, because in the meantime, there are problems about immigration, etc. If we do join the single European market, great advantage from the point of view of trade and for so many other reasons. But it does still create uh, the immigration problem for people who are worried about it. And we must all be worried about it because... A shortage of labor is one of our great problems now. Um, And when, I mean, if you take the health service, when we left uh, and Brexit took place, uh, European doctors and nurses went home. And we've still got an increase in immigration, but less in the skilled immigration we need. So there are lots of reasons why I think the relationship will change. But it'll take time. Um,
0: so you you later on created the uh, Democratic uh, Labour Party before the Social Democratic Party was later formed. Yes. So what was the process like of, of starting a, a new political party? And and you know did you where did you envisage it going? Did you see it as just a, a sort of local movement or one that might one day sort of expand into something more national?
1: Well, it was a local movement. I mean, I wasn't at that stage in a position to launch a great national movement, but whether or not it developed into a bigger movement depended entirely on Roy Jenkins. Uh, And it was a long argument as to whether or not uh, he should join me or whether that was an immature request for him to do so. And uh, I discussed it with Roy Jenkins. Now, of course, my local Labour Party, uh, which had become a very left-wing militant local Labour Party, uh, was very anti-Europe. At least it changed. I mean, at one stage, the Labour Party, with Wilson as Prime Minister, was rather, after the Goals' first veto, it was in favour of our rejoining. And uh, uh, Wilson and Brown, the Foreign Secretary, went on a tour of Europe to try and win support and persuade de Gaulle to change his veto they didn't succeed it wasn't a very successful tour Brown didn't always behave himself very correctly and as later uh, happened uh, uh, de Gaulle was asked what do you make of that Mr Brown the foreign secretary oh said this very dignified figure of general de Gaulle and president de Gaulle oh I rather like that Little Brown, but I wish he wouldn't keep calling me Charlie. <laughs> uh, so that wasn't a great success. And uh, of course, de Gaulle continued his veto. Uh, and the party, having been at one stage very pro, saw a chance when uh, Heath became prime minister. It saw a chance of reverting. Well, in fact, Heath wanted us to join. Uh, de Gaulle had died. The veto had gone. And there's a chance that of voting for joining. And Labour, which had been strongly in favour of joining, hence the tour of Wilson and Brown, uh, suddenly decided, oh, we've got a chance of overthrowing the government. So it did an absolutely disgraceful flip-flop and said, oh, no, we're going to now vote answer, uh, against uh, joining Europe. And in fact, we're going to have a three-line whip to make all Labour Party vote against Europe, voted for before, but this time to vote against it, to vote uh, vote a three-line whip against it. Uh, Well, I wasn't going to have that. Uh, I mean, I've always been a pro-European, and why should I reverse my opinion? And And the local party said, oh, well, party's more important than principle. And my view was, no, principle is more important than party in the end. You can't just say... Every time I change my principle, I'm still sticking. Disraeli used to put it this way: he says the golden rule of British parliamentary government is that uh, stick to your stick to your party, damn your principles. And I think that's a thoroughly pernicious, corrupting doctrine. And my view was stick to my principles, and if necessary, abandon the party if it abandons my principle. And that's what we had the great brawl about.
0: So, in general, do you think there's any way actually that we can we can solve that problem? Um, the, the issue that you know MPs often end up going along what their party says and and wants um, and rather than actually what their own, in some cases, their own conscience or what they they believe is best.
1: Well, uh, in fact, I mean, of course, the Labour leader. Uh, Is not making very strong noises about getting rid of Brexit in the short term. Uh, But by and large, the Labour leader is pro-Europe. I mean, the Labour Party, I think at the moment, is by and large a pro-Europe party. Especially, because the Conservatives have turned the other way around. They've become the anti-Europe party, whereas they usually pro-Europe party. It is crazy, but I think there should be a certain consistency and a certain regard to principle. And what do you do? I mean, if you believe in your principles, do you then say, I will stick in them and damn the party? Or do what Disraeli says and stick to the party and damn my principles? Mm. Well, I think it's a clear choice for anybody who cares about honesty in politics. Of course, uh, this led me to form a local party, mm. but I didn't think that the local party at that stage would have a lot of support and depend crucially on Roy Jenkins Roy Jenkins led the pro European revolt inside the Labour Party, a person of the highest integrity, most successful minister in the Labour government after 19, uh, whatever it was, uh, in the 1960s. Um, and, uh, and he was so firm and he gave such firm leadership. But he didn't think the time was ripe at that stage because uh, we would have needed the Moderates of the Labour Party to support us, the Social Democrats. Mm-hmm. And the trouble about that is that moderates were the councillors. And we were about to have council elections for everybody. It happened to be after local government reform. And uh, if, in fact, the councillors needed an organisation, which they did need for fighting the council elections, they would have had to stay with Labour. So that was the reason Roy Jenkins said, I can't go and join you now. Other reason I think was there, was everyone expected Labour to lose that election. Uh, uh, and had they lost the election, it's much easier for a party to change when it's in opposition. After all, Labour, the SDP was formed after a disastrous defeat for the Labour Party. Uh, so uh, he, he, I think that he felt, and I think I felt also to some extent, that a better time to try to create a new national party uh, would have been after a Labour defeat and when the SDP was formed.
0: So what really attracted you to join the SDP? I mean, of course you had the the Liberals there at that point as well. So what was was the, the thing that sort of really attracted you towards the SDP rather than another political party?
1: Well, because I was always a social democrat. The STP was a sensible approach to nationalisation, not making it the ark of the covenant and abiding by clause 4. Yes, in certain circumstances, nationalisation is right and others it's not, but it shouldn't be a dogma. And that was part of what the STP stood for part of what I've always argued for. I mean, as an admirer of Crossland in his book, The Future of Socialism, he argued for it at that time so uh yes i mean see, sdp was natural for me i had one difference with the sdp when it was formed i think that at that stage a lot of the old labor stalwarts saw that what they needed was a new labor party they wanted an undogmatic labor party and that's why i called it the social democratic uh party sdp um and the, a lot of them were somewhat uh, uncertain about the Liberals. I mean, David Owen actually hated Liberals. He thought they were a lot of softies and weren't tough like David Owen, which he's always been. Uh, so uh, uh, David Owen was at it. And quite a few of the Labour Party members said, no, look, we want a new Labour Party. We don't want to be too close to Liberals. And my argument was absolutely plain. There's only room for one center party british politics it's difficult enough for them as it is but um, how can you if you have a liberal party and a social democratic party the center will be split they will not be effective and in the end of course that doctrine prevailed but it was quite a a struggle to have an alliance between the as the liberal democrats and rather social democrats and the liberals uh, which was the eventual uh, the role in social democratic alliance and party.
0: So often, one of the reasons that the SDP uh, struggled was, of course, you had first past the post. You had the Falklands War. Um, there's a huge number of, of different reasons that, uh, in the end, it, it struggled and and didn't quite make the the headway that they they wanted to. Um, so, what do you think was the the reason for the eventual sort of decline in the party and and then the merger?
1: Well. Uh, first of all, I think they were unlucky about the Falklands War because at that stage they were actually ahead of the Labour Party in the Opinion Polls. And if they'd been ahead in the Opinion Polls, that would have been the replacement of a sort of militant Labour Party by a Social Democratic Party. But Falklands, I think, did an awful lot to help Mrs uh, Th- Thatcher uh, and she, she was triumphant and, and she was very brave. So has to admit that, uh, but uh, I in the end, I think the logic prevailed that you can't have a, a, a sort of divided parties. Um, all right, then the time tides turned against it, and at the moment, what we will likely have, I think, in the next election is um tactical voting uh, lots of evidence of tactical voting. And the tactical voting at the moment, as the pattern appears, is that it would lead to something like 40 to 50 Liberal Democrat seats and a sizable Labour majority. Uh, And I think that would be an alliance between the two. I've always seen it as a need for an alliance, but really harping back to the uh, early 20th century when the Liberal Party was the opposition and then split split into a socialist party, and the liberal party, and the liberals disappeared because of the middle. The other reason, of course, I think you just mentioned it, proportional representation. I think it's absolutely essential our system should be reformed because at the moment, a small minority of conservatives are really like to be perpetually in government because of the unfairness of the electors It takes a tiny proportion of the numbers to elect a conservative MP, what it does to elect a a Labour MP, let alone a Liberal Democrat MP. So the system is wholly unfair. Most countries have a proportional system and think it's fairer. And I hope we move that way. But again, I think uh, Starmer needs a bit of convincing. He doesn't terribly like major changes.
0: So, what did you think about uh, David Owen's attempt to sort of uh, keep the SDP alive, as it were? We we did speak to him actually, as as part of this series, um, oh. and uh, um, he uh, he he sort of was uh, talking about you know how how effectively he never never wanted to work with the liberals and that his his main thing was the SDP. So, you know, how how did you view that then? That he was trying to keep the party effectively going, even though it had merged.
1: Well, it was a lunatic attempt. He ended up in a by-election with fewer votes than the monster-raving loony party, and that was the end of it. You know, and Owen is a very odd character. Uh, I have some respect for him because he's not a glad-hand-on. And it's quite a pro David Owen story to hear how he got his first job. Oh, he was one of the—he was the youngest MP in Parliament, and three very bright young Labour MPs after the big victory of 1966, uh, uh, f- wrote a pamphlet called Change Gear, saying that uh, Wilson was on the wrong economic path. Wilson was absolutely furious for these upstarts. Who were they, these young upstarts, telling him how to run the economic policy? So he was a very hostile, and he also thought that they had been an unusually friendly relationship with the observer correspondent, Nora Belloff. And was he made some very rude remarks about it. So David Owen, one day, stepped into a, list, a lift where Wilson was in the lift. And he turned to Wilson and he said, Harold, I don't give a damn who you are. I've read what you said about us and Nora Belloff. It's an absolute disgrace. And if you say that in future openly, I will sue you. And I don't give a damn who you are an impressive performance with the youngest MP against the very successful Prime Minister of a very large majority. But Wilson thought, oh God, this chap is tough, he's dangerous, and a week later gave him a job. So, uh, I mean, I'm I'm not a great admirer of David Owen because I think his attitude was wrong, and so, and he's often been too, um, uh, too, too, too um, un- unreasonable. But I do respect his toughness. He's not an an easy pushover.
0: Uh, So to move slightly away from uh, sort of party politics, um, one of the other things, and especially as as someone who who runs a think tank myself, and uh, you helped to found the the Institute for Fiscal Studies and uh, and sat as its first director. Um, So what was it like in your situation sort of helping to, to create a think tank? Um, and I suppose it's especially of interest to in myself, <laughs> having having been in sort of the same situation.
1: Well, uh, I ended up, I was first of all a junior minister to Roy Jenkins in the Home Office, and then I became a junior minister in the Treasury. I ended up as financial secretary to the Treasury, uh, when, uh, which I was when Labour lost the election in 1970, whatever it was. Uh, Oh, sorry, bad about dates. Anyway, uh, we, so we, I was out of office and wondered what to do. And uh, three people who, who were very up, upset at the way in which our financial uh, legislation was created said, uh, what we need is a new uh, institution. And they f- formally founded the Institute for Fiscal Studies, but it had no money, no staff and no director. So I was approached and saying, would you like to set up and start uh, a new Institute for Fiscal Studies? Well, I thought about it, consulted people, say, oh, you don't want another new thing. And I decided it was needed because when I was in the Treasury, I noticed the difference between the approach of the people concerned with administration, the, the lawyers and, those, uh, and the accountants, who had a different attitude to the economists who have grand plans. I mean, there was a wonderful economist called um, Nikki Kaldor, Hungarian, lovely man, very bright. And he was very much in favor of wealth tax. And when I became a Treasury Minister, I said, I'm in favor of the wealth tax too. Uh, what can we do to promote it? He says, OK, let's have an argument with the Inland Revenue and uh, we'll see what they say about it. But I will strongly argue for it, as I'm sure you will, in favor of a wealth tax. And uh, we had the argument with the Indian Revenue, and we lost it because there were technical objections. Uh, what do you do about works of art? Are they wealth? Well, if they're wealth, uh, everybody will go into uh, will avoid it because they don't want to pay the tax on it. Mm. If they're not treated as wealth, everybody will buy art because. Uh, that's a way of avoiding tax. So um, what I decided to do was, yes, there was the need for a new institute, but it needed to combine uh, the expertise of the practitioners, the lawyers and the accountants and the economists. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky in that I got a Nobel Prize winner, James Mead, who was a friend of mine, to be the chairman of a commission which I thought would be of interest, namely one which looked at what a sensible system of direct taxation would look at. And I got a lot of very bright young economists on it, including, uh, I've forgotten the man who later was the governor of the Bank of England, and a brilliant young economist, John Kay, and Nicky Caldor was in it. And uh, anyway, and um, and this report, uh, created a great sensation. It was treated with all the respect of a royal commission, uh, because it was a completely new outlook combining the, the skills of different parts of the professions, uh, and uh, it was a great success. And then I persuaded uh, the very young economist John Kay, who was the star almost of this profession, despite having Nobel Prize winner at the chair. Um, I persuaded him, he was 25 and he was being offered various chairs, I persuaded him, look, if you become the director of this, I will see you get enough finance, because I've been very successful raising money from business, which also wants a more sensible tax system. Uh, I'll raise the finance, you can choose your own staff, and I have a lot of contacts in government because I was former se- financial secretary, and you'll have far more influence if you become a professor in Bristol and i was right he was a star and uh, the success of the ifs was not due to me except uh, in the appointment of john Kay and the setting up of the mead commission and also the bringing together different members of it uh, but so after a while i thought well at times now to hand over john Kay knows all about economics the way i don't and all these other lawyers will help him so uh, i said and persuaded John Kay to become the director, and every director of the IFS since then has been a star. It's now still regarded as sort of Olympian detachment and objectivity. Very successful institute. It's one of the, uh, I'd say, uh, yes, it's one of the things I've done in life which I've left a legacy for. And the other things I got interest in science. And I start a new science foundation called Sense About Science, but. Those are my achievements, but I think they're far more important than my achievements as a minister.
0: Well, thank you so much for talking to me today and for for answering all of my questions, Um, as I said, uh, a lot of which um, were just sort of off the cuff. So thank you so much for coming on.
1: Well, i enjoyed it. Thank you.